Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, reporting today from my new Arlington, Virginia condo. No longer do I need to speak to you through my iPhone headphones. I have my fancy microphone back. I wish I could say that the move went more smoothly than it did. Unfortunately, I walked into the condo boxes in hand to find a ruptured water heater and some standing water in, I believe, three rooms? So yeah, I had to get the water mitigation team out to the condo that night. They cut up about a foot of drywall, a bunch of carpet. Yeah, so a lot of fun conversations the past week and a half, two weeks with insurance companies and general contractors, but I hope to be up and running here soon. I'm very learning very quickly about the, uh, the joys of homeownership that so many people have told me about. But that's neither here nor there, and I'm sure you all do not care about that, and you care about what we're going to talk about today, which is the release of the coddling of the American mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. I've talked about this book now for months, and it's finally out today. Of course, it's co-authored by the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, my boss, Greg Lukianoff and New York University professor Jonathan Haidt. The book is already getting rave reviews from places like the Financial Times, Commentary Magazine, the Sunday Times, and it's also been featured on the cover of the New York Times book review with a glowing review. And I suspect I'm recording this, what is it, Friday, August 31st. The book comes out Tuesday, September 4th. This podcast comes out Tuesday, September 4th. By the time the book comes out, I'm sure you'll have read about it in even more publications. Hopefully the reviews are just as positive. If you haven't picked up the book yet, please do. We're hoping it'll land on the bestsellers list. I guess how the bestsellers list works is they take all the pre-orders and the first week sales and uh, then calculate that to see where you land. So you've got about a week to get a copy uh, and to um, learn more about the ideas that we're going to discuss today with Greg. Uh, John is not participating in this podcast. Uh, It's just me and Greg, and we recorded it in our Washington, D.C. headquarters. And Greg and John have been recording a lot of podcasts in preparation for the release of this book. They'll all come out on or shortly thereafter the release date of the book. And I wanted to try and find out, find a way to talk about something different, something that not other podcasts will cover. And so I tried to get personal with Greg here in this conversation. He and I have known each other since I started as an intern at FIRE in 2010. And then, of course, he hired me on as his assistant in 2012. So I know a lot about him. I know a lot about his history at FIRE. So I tried to delve into some of that here in this podcast. Now, originally, this podcast was also recorded for video to put up on FIRE's YouTube channel. That YouTube channel is youtube.com slash thefireorg. Uh, Some of you who are very astute listeners or big fans of the show might notice that we have a playlist for this podcast on YouTube. Most of the time, we just post the audio from the podcast on YouTube. But recently, we've started posting more video. I have this tripod that I attach my iPhone to, and I just plop it right next to me and whoever I'm talking with, and we upload that to YouTube in lieu of the audio. And I had intended to do that here with this conversation with Greg, 
but I guess if someone calls you in the midst of recording a video, the video stops. So I've learned my lesson. I'm going to put my phone in airplane mode moving forward. But as a result, you're not getting video from this podcast. So I'm not going to tell you too much about the book because we get into a lot of it in this the course of this conversation. Uh, we start on the topic of parenting, which is a huge component of this book and one that's kind of gone unrecognized in the discussion of it. As you know, the the book came out of a 2015 cover story that Greg and John wrote for The Atlantic that got tons of press. Uh, it was one of the most read cover stories for The Atlantic of all time. And in about 2016, as you'll hear from Greg, he and John decided to get the band back together and write a full book-length expansion of the article, touching on a lot of themes that they hadn't touched on in the first one, uh, and touching on a lot of research that had come out after their article ran, and touching on some of the events that came out after their article originally ran. For example, the election of President Donald Trump and the student protest movement at places like the University of Missouri and Yale University in 2015. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Greg, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So I don't really know where to begin here, Greg, because uh, you're doing so many of these podcasts right now, <laughs> sure. and I suspect everyone is asking you the same question. No, actually, the interesting thing is there's so much going on in the book that people are taking very different approaches to it. Oh, really? Um, okay. <clears throat> I haven't seen any of it yet because you're pre-recording all this stuff. Although uh, one thing that does come up is people really are sort of surprised by how much of about it is, uh, how much is it? how much it focuses on parenting. Yeah. Um, and those are some of my favorite chapters in the whole book. So th those are a real pleasure for me to talk about. So uh, a couple interviews in a row, they, were, they, they really were fascinated by the chapter that we had on paranoid parenting and the chapter that we had on play, which was probably one of the most interesting things we you know, I learned while writing the book. Well, it suggests that they've actually read the book. That yes. Doesn't happen every uh, time. I, I, I have been very pleased that it, that it seems like every interview I've done, with one exception, and will go, remain nameless, um, uh, has clearly read the book. And you are a relatively new father, right? Uh -huh. So ha ha what sort of books have you been reading, separate from working on this, just about parenting, and how did that kind of inform your writing. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is for, for the most part, it was a good excuse to read a lot of books on parenting um, while writing this book since we knew we were going to focus somewhat on parenting. Uh, you know, before that, I read all the, you know, all the basic books, the Sears books about having a baby that you'll end up reading if you ever have kids. Um, but then for the book, there was a nice sort of overlap of my own interests. I have a, I have a, a two and a half year old who just started uh, preschool ben. and doesn't like it very much. Benjamin um, and Maxwell, who is uh, about just about to turn my nine months old. Um, so I'm a pretty new father, and one thing I really try to stress, and it didn't make, uh, we ended up not being in in the final drafts of the book, but. When it comes to our parenting recommendations for having, you know, kids who are more free range by allowing them greater independence, by allowing them to take greater risks, I want to be very clear. I don't think this stuff is easy. I think every fiber of parents' beings wants to, wants to really frankly overprotect your kids. Um, so I'm not claiming that, that, that I think some of these recommendations are easy, um, but they're important because if you have kids that don't uh, have the experience of free play, that don't have the experience of setting their own schedule sometimes, you end up in a situation where kids don't have a locus of control. They're, they're used to being overscheduled, and that's a formula for a really anxious, uh, depressed kid who has been made to feel like they're not competent enough to manage their own lives. Or have someone else take care of all their problems. Yeah. And that's kind of the connection to the campus, is that if you, if you 
set up an environment for a child in which all of their time is scheduled and there's a third party that can mediate any disputes, then you can expect when they go to high school or go to college that they're expecting the same from their teachers, from the administrators, right? Well, yeah. Uh, Basically, a lot of what we're arguing in the book uh, are the negative side of otherwise seemingly positive things. Um, And that uh, for a long time, there seemed to be no downside to just increasingly upping your game when it came to childhood safety. And the early benefits we reaped from emphasis on childhood safety are plummeting numbers of childhood deaths due to, due to things like car accidents or uh, household poisons. Or, or um, you know, uh, We've actually been tremendously successful in protecting the lives and health of children. Uh, but there is at some point um, harm that you can do when it becomes this overscheduled um, environment, when it becomes this place where you're sort of exaggerating fears to students and, and, to, and to children, you end up in a situation where people think they're in much greater danger than they actually are. And probably one of the more interesting sort of things that um, uh, sort of coincided was um, uh, is, is Bradley and Campbell's theory of moral dependency, mm-hmm. that essentially um, that the way we sort of organize uh, our, ourselves morally comes in different sort of flavors and types. And the one that he sees uh, that those authors see happening on campuses is a situation that in contrast to a, uh, a theory of dignity, where essentially um, where things like sticks and stones can break my bones come from, where disputes yeah, my are worth, my my worth is it's inherent, right? Yeah, but also the disputes are generally handled on a personal level, um, not with appeal to authority. Um, that as society has moved on, we've moved more towards everything has to be solved with an appeal to authority, mm-hmm. and that has some really scary connotations for what the future might look like. Yeah, in democracy, for example, yeah. I know you talk about that in the book. So how 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 do these paranoid parents uh, not set their children up for democracy. <laughs> That's, I mean, it, it definitely is one of the more interesting, uh, you know, uh, discussions of the book. I think Steve Horowitz had some, uh, we quote him at length because he he's a some, Ball State professor. Who had some really interesting uh, thoughts on this. Uh, but if you are used to you know, the idea of it's not on me to fix things around me, it's not on my collaboration with other people, it's rather on authority to fix things for me, that's setting people up for a big brother type state. Uh, and it's interesting when you look at uh, particularly books like uh, Fahrenheit 451 and some of the dystopian ones, um, in a lot of cases, Big Brother is not something that is imposed on people. It's something that is initially at least requested. Yeah, you have been talking about this book, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Achtung Baby? Achtung Baby, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, what did you learn from that book, and how did that influence your writing here? Achtung Baby is the book that I most regret not actually having men- a mention of in, in, in Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, but there's a very simple reason. I read it way too late in the process writing. Of, of writing the book to, to, to squeeze in a mention for Sarah Zasky's uh, great book, Achtung Baby. And it's one of these books, I told one of my friends about it, who always kind of rolls rolls my his eyes at my work. Um, and uh, he was just like, oh, it's one of these like foreigners do it better, like uh, like bringing up Bebe, which is about how French parents raise their kids. And this was about an American mother who goes and raises raise her kid in um, Germany. And she's surprised that despite sort of German reputations, rather than having this really controlled and authoritarian kind of way of raising kids, it, there's a great emphasis on independence. There's a great emphasis on resilience. There's real pressure on parents to not overparent, kind of the exact opposite of what you see in the U.S. 
And what's the most interesting, uh, most important, uh, some of the lines in the book are parents actually saying, we don't think this is easy. We're not claiming that it's, uh, we, we want to protect, overprotect our kids as well. Um, but partially because of their totalitarian past. Um, and they're very aware of the fact that, that, that conformity can be sort of instilled very young. And partially as a way to keep democracy vibrant, that they take very seriously the idea of cultivating an independently-minded, resilient, uh, autonomous uh, generation, making a very direct connection between um, play and freedom as a child and democracy. When I was growing up, I lived near a river, and I grew up on a block with a lot of other people my age. Uh And I remember I'd wake up in the morning on the weekends, and I would go onto the block. This was before people had cell phones, especially kids had cell phones. I was about 10, maybe. And my parents wouldn't know where I I was until it was dinner time. And if I wasn't home by dinner time, they didn't freak out. I was just in trouble because I was late and having too much fun and wasn't home for like the one thing I needed to be home for. Uh, during the day, but I'd go play by the river in the woods. There'd be strangers walking past. It'd be a park. And I'm not as, I don't have kids, so I'm not as familiar on how kids are raised today, but I just get this kind of cultural sense, this zeitgeist that when I'm a parent, I don't know that I'll have the uh, courage to let my kids do the same thing just because of the connected nature of society nowadays. I don't know, like I, I don't go a day without knowing what my girlfriend's up to or without right. her knowing what I'm up to. Sure. The idea of my child, who I'm responsible it's just for. just running around. Yeah. yeah, I was just running around. So there's like, I, I just think the way that technology's advanced and the sort of social yep. dynamic now makes it a lot harder, even though I understand intuitively why letting your children have freedom is important for them their development, for yeah. their being able to mediate disputes. We would play capture the flag and there'd be uh, an issue with the game. We didn't right. call our parents to help fig- figure it out. Right. I mean, we'd figured it out on the block, sometimes with fist fights, uh, yeah. other times with words. And if, <laughs> and if you told anybody that was snitching. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny. And one thing I want to be very clear about, because it sounds it sounds like what, what I, I might even respond to this part of the conversation, is the, oh, these old guys want the golden age back. And... I have to say this. Uh, um, if I had to pick a year to live in, it would still be now. Um, you know, possibly 20 years from now. But in the past, height made a good argument for maybe the 90s. You know, the 90s were pretty cool. We we, we remember that. Um, but for me, you know, like I would still choose to uh, to, to live today. Um, that being said, we still have to deal with what I call problems and what we call in the book problems of progress. And uh, one of the things that is kind of predictable is that we be, is that when we have technology to track our kids, we're tempted to track our kids. We have more time to pay more attention to our kids, we pay more attention. When we have fewer kids, you invest more in them. And all of these things add up to an environment that really has to there has to be institutions that check rather than exaggerate kind of our, our, our domineering uh, nature. So unfortunately, what's happening in the U.S. is the exact opposite of the sort of cultural push towards valuing independence against the cultural tides. Um, everything in the U.S., uh, it, until people like Lenore Skenazy really started, you know, her movement. For free-range kids for, movement. For, for, for free-range kids, um, was pushing in the opposite direction. And this includes the, probably the scariest versions of this, is when people actually get arrested for letting their kids play by themselves in the park while they're working, for example. Or for parents who leave their kids in the car while they run into the grocery store to pick up one. Th- my mom did that all the time. Sure. Sorry to throw you under the bus, mom, but that was just a regular part of my childhood. Absolutely. And oftentimes it was me who didn't want to go in with her. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, so a lot of this stuff, but now it's kind of like the, 
uh, some of my happiest times, I remember, was walking through kind of like the depressed part of town, you know, mm-hmm. um, 40-minute walk to school. I loved it. Like, it was times where I could be totally by myself. But now if you see, like, a you know 11-year-old kid walking by himself, you get really like, oh. Yeah. Um, and what you need partially to overcome some of these uh, problems is, one, you have to make sure that people aren't getting arrested for doing things that we would have taken for granted you could do as a kid. Because it's important to remember, um, it's a, the country is a lot safer now than it was um, when, uh, you know, certainly when I was a kid. Up until 1992-ish, um, the homicide rate had gone up pretty consistently since the 1950s. And it's just been plummeting um, since then. Uh, like I said, we've all, all these other improvements to safety. And meanwhile, even though I could have predicted that you know violent crime got worse almost every year until I was like an adult, effectively, um, we haven't really absorbed the fact that it is actually safer in all these different ways. And you, what you have to do is encourage parents to get together in communities of people who practice free-range parenting, so that they're not—they're they're going to agree to have each other's backs as they let their kids um, explore for themselves, just the way we did when we were kids. Yeah, well, let's try and figure out how this parenting thing fits into the broader uh, story that you tell in the coddling of the American mind. And one of the ways I thought we could do this, again, because I'm conscious that you're doing a lot of interviews right now, <laughs> and I don't want to do the same thing that they all do, is, is, is take the personal touch. You and I have known each other since 2010 about. Yep. Uh, we've worked together for the past six years maybe yeah uh closely together i was your i was my first job at fire was as your assistant yep um and i you know i'm nervous to even ask you about this stuff despite the fact that you talk about it in the book you're up front about it but the origins of this is really with you struggling with anxiety and depression correct yep so talk a little bit about those years and that process and what you learned from it Sure. Uh, well, okay. Um, it's it's interesting because I, there's a passage in the book where I talk about my own my own worst situation with depression, in which I was actually hospitalized. Um, I would have bouts of depression almost every year, and um, in 2007 they got really really severe. That was actually about two years into my presidency of fire. Was it a seasonal thing or was it? Um, it tended to get worse when, when it got darker. Yeah, winter. Yeah. Um, the, the, definitely the seasonal thing made made it made it made everything worse. But I was hospitalized as a danger to myself, and the and the section I wrote in there, it's kind of funny because like when you're writing, it feels so private. I it took me um, talking about it much later on to be like, oh my god, I put in the book like a description of like how bad it got that I haven't even told mm-hmm. my wife and my family doesn't know how bad it actually uh, how bad okay. it actually was. So I'm like somehow I, I somehow you have this like false sense of like oh well you know I'm just writing this down. It's like oh boy, it's probably the most public thing I've ever done. But anyway, but I wanted to be honest about it, and I wanted to be, to explain how I came to become familiar uh, at a very intimate level with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and I got depressed in 2007, partially really because of the job. Um, I was not very happy in Philadelphia, being stuck in the middle of the culture wars, really, frankly, was exhausting. You know, I, I remember dating someone uh, in Philadelphia who actually said, when I said that, you know, I'm willing to defend Nazis, of course, I'm willing to re- defend Republicans. And she actually said to me, well, maybe Nazis are worse. <laughs> I was like, okay, so it was a very alienating kind of like rough period. It's kind life. of worse. I mean, the culture wars are worse now, and too. They're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're even more intense now. So and was, I'm with you on Philly, too. There, <laughs> there, you know. there was a lot of, there was a lot of dark. Uh, it was, a, it was a pretty dark time. And I, and it was, hopefully the worst, you know, knock on wood, I'll ever be. But the thing that really helped me was, one, moving closer to family and moving to New York, um, where Fire used to, uh, had an office for a little while. 
Um, and the other thing was cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially to really boil it down. Um, it's learning to argue rationally with yourself. And what I mean by that is um, you get a list of cognitive distortions, um, and those are crazy, exaggerated thoughts that almost everybody engages in to some degree. So, but let's give an example of like a real yeah. cognitive distortion. You go on a date, it doesn't go well, and immediately you're like, I'm gonna die alone. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's catastrophizing. Um, that's black, or, black and white thinking. That's any number of cognitive distortions. And I'm doing it right now with my apartment that had the water heater <laughs> right, damage. Exactly. I'm thinking like behind the, every wall this, is a pipe that is about to burst. The, the, this is it for me, folks. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not never going to be able to live here. I, I'm not going to make it. Um, and the, even what we're doing right there is actually a little bit of a version of cognitive therapy. You're, you're kind of like, you're talking yourself down by sort of uh, recognizing how ridiculous your own thoughts can be. Well, I actually, I mean, when all this stuff was going down that I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast about uh, my condo, I was thinking, I was, I was like spiraling downward in the depths <laughs> of despair. And I was thinking right. to myself, because we're working so much on this book, I'm right. like, this is a distortion. Yeah, this is a distortion. This is, Absolutely. everything here is fixable. Right. There are not like little demons seeking to break my yeah. pipes behind the walls. <laughs> like not every drop of water I hear is is going to go after my drywall. Yeah, Nazis are probably not going to destroy my village. I yes. mean, like that, that was always the thing that my dad grew up in Yugoslavia, Yeah, you know, and they were occupied by Nazis. And, and to me, that was always kind of like, well, you know, at least Nazis didn't destroy my village today. It was always, you know, a, a messed up kind of form of putting it in therapy. context. Yeah, at least I haven't lost my condo to a wildfire, for example. <laughs> well, exactly. Seriously, yeah. Yeah, and so um, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, it doesn't work right away. I did want to emphasize that even though it's relatively simple to do, if you don't do it every day or, re or more than every day, um, it doesn't work. Um, and it takes a while, and it can be kind of subtle. But pretty much since, you know, maybe nine months of really intensive cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I... For the first time, you know, like I, 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 in years, I felt good again, um, and it's prevented me from going into any depression anywhere deep, anywhere nearly as deep as I did in 2007. So it wasn't the time, mm -hmm. that the, the that nine month time frame that really helped you. You're you're confident it was cognitive behavioral therapy because you haven't had the same sort of relapses that you were having before. Right, because when when I get the when I get the you know, I feel it's approaching. I'm better yeah. able to fight it off, yeah. essentially. And it does still happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have had some, but nothing nearly as bad, partially because I'm, you know, I have better mental habits because of it. Now, I'm doing all of this stuff while at the same time I'm working out for free speech on college campuses. And I was like, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm being taught not to engage in all this sort of exaggerated thinking of, you know, uh, the, uh, that I'm in tremendous danger or what's called overgeneralization and labeling, uh, binary thinking, all or, all or nothing thinking. Um, and meanwhile, I'm dealing with case after case where it looked like campus administrators were behaving in all of these ways that kind of modeled distorted thinking. Uh, well, you know, like the famous case, actually, it's good that we have this here. Um, it's a poster. Long, long story uh, short. Um, a professor put up a quote from the beloved sci-fi show Firefly. Um, I'm a huge fan, of which I'm a huge fan. That only existed for not even a full season um, at uh, a university in Wisconsin. And he uh, ran into, he got into trouble with the administration, and we had to get involved in this case. And that was a perfect example of catastrophizing. No reasonable person could really have looked at the circumstances in, involved in this case, which we have a video of, by the way, up on the on, on the FIRE website. It was still one of my favorites that we ever did. Yeah. So you can see the poster Greg's uh, pointing to right now. Yeah. It's red with, uh, who's that guy? 
oh, Nathan Fillion? I'm yeah. like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> Nathan, yeah, Nathan Fillion. <laughs> Good Lord. What did they teach you in high school? I don't know. I don't even know who Captain America is. I'm a lost cause. Which one? <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so so constantly, whether it was in speech zones or any so many free speech controversies, it seemed as if uh, university administrators were trying to teach this exaggerated kind of way of thinking to students. Not intentionally, but just by kind of modeling the behavior. And that when, there's good people, that there's bad people, that if speech exists outside of this free speech zone or outside of the scope of their something control, terrible some, will happen. the sky will fall. That's yeah. one of the things we point out about free speech zones. There's something like one in six colleges have them. Yeah. And you, and those those five out of six who don't, it's not like the sky has fallen because yeah. they've eliminated their free speech zone. Yeah. And it, 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 I have to say this over and over again. It's going to be okay yeah. if people are allowed to hand out leaflets all over campus. <laughs> you will actually survive that. But for most of my career, as I always have to say, the students themselves were usually the best constituency for speech. And they weren't they didn't seem to really be buying what the administrators were selling when it came to this kind of exaggerated sense of threat. Now, to be fair to administrators, some of that actually comes from just plain old ordinary fear of legal liability. Yeah, which is of course risk management. Lawyers' faults, which I know that we you know, lawyers distort uh, I'm a lawyer and we we create all sorts of problems. Well, that's one of the connections to parenting, too. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons that the parents implement these sort of systems of control is because they're worried about the risks to their children as well. I mean, yeah. just in the same way uh, that parents now, because of the expectations, have negligence risks in a way that they didn't in the 70s. But, you know, campus administrators, campus safety administrators are worried about the risks to Absolutely. students that might come from a hurtful word yeah. cast in the wrong direction. So when we saw this uh, shift uh, in 2013, 2014, that was really kind of the pivotal year where we saw more students pushing for disinvitations, for uh, new speech codes, microaggression, uh, like microaggression style policy, for trigger warning policies. It seemed to happen almost overnight. Because I worked with you on your first book on yeah. learning liberty, campus censorship, and the end of American debate. It was and, 2012. Yeah, and those words weren't even in our lexicon. I mean, they'd been floating around, but I'm not even sure they were in the book. They're not in the book. Um, the uh, in 2012 things actually, we, I feel like it was a little bit of a uh, of a lull, and it's and only in the sense that we went through a brief period where the kind of cases we were seeing were what I would call the don't question authority cases, which are always going to happen. They're always like someone's too big for their britches at a, at a university, mid-level administrator. How dare you criticize the parking garage? How dare you criticize the park? How many of them had to do with parking is actually really <laughs> Well, we're, right now we have the case at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute where they the students uh, want to keep their student union that they've had for over 100 yeah. years and the administrators are trying to take it away. And that's a clear, like, yeah, that's, you know, we're, you're questioning our authority therefore you must be silenced. Classic abuse of power, uh, yeah. which, which, you're, which you're always going to see. And in a sense, I took that as almost a sign of progress, that if we're moving back to the kind of cases that are as old as time itself, maybe we've made some progress. But around 2013, 2014, just a year after Unlearning Liberty comes out, um, we started seeing a lot more cases involving students demanding censorship. And increasingly, they were making sort of medicalized arguments that essentially this having the speaker on campus would be traumatic to me. Having this debate on campus would be traumatic to me. And you, uh, oftentimes also concluded with, though I don't have PTSD, but we should not do the following things because other people might. And this was such a fast shift that we noticed both at FIRE and some of my other friends who kind of like monitor the culture war noticed it too. I went to talk to someone I had recently become friends with, um, Jonathan Haidt, um, because he wrote this great book, The Righteous Mind, but also more importantly, The Happiness Hypothesis, in which he talks about cognitive behavioral therapy as being 
incredibly effective. That meditation were the, like two of the most important in, um, in interventions. And I just said, it's like, I, I told John, we were having Indian uh, lunch, and I just told him, uh, you know, about this idea, which I kind of thought was interesting at best. And he was like, let's write an article about it. And I was like, sure, that would be amazing. And what year is this, 2013? This was, but by now we're in 2014. Okay. And in 2014, um, we started working on the article that eventually became an article that came out in August of 2015 um, called Coddling the American Mind, in which we uh, expanded on this whole sort of cognitive behavioral therapy lens on what's going on on campus. And it was on the cover. The it was on the cover. It was one of its most read cover stories of all time. Yeah. It wasn't the title you wanted. It wasn't the title I wanted. I've never been a big fan of the title. I wanted Arguing Towards Misery. I wanted Disempowered, partially because people see Coddling of the American Mind and they think, you're saying people are spoiled. And it's like, actually what we're saying is overprotection can have negative consequences. Um, but so both times I lost kind of like... The, yeah, you and mind. I disagree on the title. <laughs> I think actually to co- the, the verb to coddle or coddling is a perfect descriptor of what's happening. But it's a question of agency and what you guys talk about in the book is something that's happening to people that, unbeknownst being to them. done to them. It's not necessarily that students are requesting they be coddled, though that happens in some cases, of course. So I, I think it's a good word for it. Right. It's just being uh, people who haven't read the book or aren't reading it in good faith kind of use it to say, oh, you know, older guys, you know, generational warfare, yada, yeah. yada, yada. And yeah, and, and that's you know, no matter what we call it, we were going to run into some flack for it. Yeah, but, I, I know you're sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the article, uh, the article was actually you know surprisingly well received, even though we were talking about some sacred cows of the university. Um, and you know, John and I were kind of like, well, oh, great, we wrote a part, popular article, a much better uh, response to it than we ever expected. M- many more people read it than we ever thought possible. Um, and we were, you know, we felt like our our job is done here. But then what happened is things just got a lot worse on campus. And when we wrote the article in on 2015, we had heard stories about um, psychological uh, health centers being overwhelmed at universities. We'd heard a lot of stories from administrators saying something's happened. We're seeing a lot more anxiety and depression, a lot more students who we believe are suicidal. Um, but it wasn't really showing up in the data. Uh, what we should have done, what Hyde and I should have done, was look into the data for high schools at that time. And we, what we would have discovered was that the 2016 incoming class of, of students, uh, the data that we had for 2016's incoming class, uh, absolutely dramatic increase in anxiety, depression, and suicide attempts um, for, uh, for incoming students, even, over, uh, even just from four years, six years earlier. Uh, a, a very dramatic discontinuity that was disproportionately also, by the way, affecting uh, girls and, uh, young girls and women. Um, and I remember when this was the first disturbing finding that let it, that we found as we were uh, getting ready for the book. And I remember John saying, like, well, it looks like we were onto something. And I remember just feeling like, I kind of wish we weren't. This is this is kind of scary news. So the book, uh, the book Coddling the American Mind is overwhelmingly how do we figure out what happened? What, why was the class of 2013, 2014 so different? Why is there so much more anxiety and depression? And one thing we added to it, getting outside of the mental health sphere, and why is there, uh, why has polarization uh, increased so much? Why do we have such a uh, partisan, uh, such a sort of n- nasty kind of like hyper-politicized uh, kind of environment? And just like in the article in 2015, our argument was essentially, well, why is there you know, increased anxiety and depression on campus? Because we're teaching 
a generation the habits of anxious and depressed people the the, in, in the intellectual habits but you did you you were careful not to take a step, step too far in that article you speculated that because these students were being taught or encouraged to engage in cognitive distortions that it might have re- right. negative ramifications on their health it wasn't until the next year or two that you really saw the data that bore out that well wow there might be a connection here well there wasn't enough data to to, to say that there is some data that supports us, yeah. but just not enough. Um, and by, but by the time we, you know, we finished the article, it was you know, o- overwhelming. Um, just the, how, how clear it was that there was a serious mental health crisis on campus. Um, so, and that comes from, we think at least in, to a degree, that you know, if you teach people the uh, intellectual habits of an anxious and depressed people, don't be surprised if they end up being anxious and depressed. But at this time, there were also all these articles coming out about how college uh, mental health clinics or uh, student services clinics were just being overwhelmed by requests yep. from anxious and depressed students. And one of the things that I, I suspect you'll get pushback from in the book, but that I know you have a good response to is, well, the, people, mental health doesn't have the stigma it used to have. People uh-huh. aren't, know how to report it now, but there's a there's a uh, also a rise in, in self-harm and suicide attempts, which suggests it's not right. just reporting, it's you know, more people are attempting suicides. They're 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 engaged in self harm. I I think the um, rate uh, the suicide rate for for girls and women doubled. Um, that's not something that just comes from reporting. Yeah, one of the things that's it was astounding to me in your book, and I think it's the chapter that most struck out to me as being like, holy cow, was uh, seeing how cell phone use or social media might be affecting women because men take out their aggression according to the research in different ways than women might uh it's often physical but for women it's or video emo- games. yeah or video <laughs> games <laughs> or but for women it's emotional and right. if you're gonna you know if you're gonna put the gun in the hand of somebody who takes out their aggression in a physical way then you know you might know what will come out of that uh but if what do you, what could you put in the hands of women that might supercharge their aggression social media smartphones uh and that was just like that was like a holy cow moment for me. Yeah. Well, and I mean the the way I try to explain it to, to, to people who are skeptical is just imagine the absolute worst things you remember from junior high school, and then imagine them twenty four hours a day, forever. <laughs> yeah, mean girls with with yeah, smartphones for, for absolutely forever. Um, and so all this was, you know, researching this was, uh, I, I learned so much when the process of researching this book. Um, but the factor that we added um, to, to, to our analysis was polarization. Um, and we have lots of theories on how this got worse, lots of uh, good data that shows how we increasingly live in communities that are more, uh, more isolated. And what happens when you're more politically isolated is people tend to get more extreme. Uh, but what we've seen in the past, uh, particularly since the election of Trump, it's as if you have this sort of echo chamber of uh, higher education and this echo chamber, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, at least to some degree, the alt-right. And these two echo chambers were kind of not touching each other for a while. And suddenly they've, uh, they're overlapping and it's, the result's pretty ugly. Yeah. The, uh, how, how did you come to that polarization uh, thread of this argument? I, I, I think... Uh, You've I think, been talking, because you talked about that in Unlearning Liberty, In Unlearning too. Liberty, yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the things that w- made me really want to write with, with, with John was the fact that um, we were both had an interest in cognitive behavioral therapy. We both had an interest in um, polarization. Like, John writes actually a fair amount about political yeah. polarization. Um, and 
it just seemed to get worse uh, it, it, visibly um, almost every year since I started my career in 2001. Because, you know, when, you, when I look at what the culture war on campus looked like in 2001, it wasn't the sort of stereotype of, um, you know, c- conservatives on one side and uh, liberals wanting speech codes on the other. But as the years have gone by, it, it, it's as if this sort of like, um, exaggerated version of tribalism that people thought was true when I started my career in 2001 kind of has become true, a, a, a weird and unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. The other thing that happened in 2005 that I suspect had something to do here was the, the student protest movement sort of ratcheted up to a degree that we hadn't seen at you mean You years. mean 2015? 2015, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the protests at the University of Missouri yeah. and over at Yale, which I know you're intimately familiar with. <laughs> sure. And all these other campuses. Yeah. The 2015 protests uh, were interesting for FIRE because uh, for most of our career, the main complaints we heard from students about their fellow students was apathy. So we were actually kind of pleased at some level to see students coming out um, and protesting and exercising their free speech rights. It became a lot more mixed, though, when on a lot of those campuses, the students were using their free speech rights and First Amendment rights to protest on restrictions to other people's free speech rights and First Amendment rights, and also to get, prof- uh, um, uh, in some cases, professors, in some cases, administrators fired for what would be clearly protected, in some case, in some case even well-intentioned uh, speech. We like actually, with Nicholas and Erica Kostakis. Oh, and, and Dean Spellman, um, which we talk about her case uh, at length um, in, in the book. Um, so it was it was an interesting time to be a First Amendment, uh, a free speech person on campus because you were like, okay, I really really psyched that that we've got some activist students taking advantage of freedom of speech. But when you're also trying to get a newspaper shut down for running an op-ed, um, you have the right to make that argument. But we do not want you to succeed. Yeah, when you're exercising your free speech rights to for oppose censorship to oppose free speech. Yeah, and also at the same time. John had started Heterodox Academy, yep. which is focused on viewpoint diversity in the academy, sort of a kind of a long-running interest of his yeah. in the field of sociology. Now, the, one of the most interesting things in that was that there, it's not like there's been any meaningful secret that universities tilt one way sort of ide- ideologically. But what I didn't know, and I think most people didn't know before um, uh, uh, Height and others really looked into it, was that you know the ratio of conservative to liberal you know might have been more like two to one, three to one. Um, uh, up until around the late 90s. And then you just see this sort of like skyrocketing um, uh, increase in the disproportionate number of of, uh, liberal versus conservative uh, faculty members. And that was something that uh, realizing that happened kind of like while I was starting my career out does kind of help explain some of the tribalism. Because you've never actually even met, you know, someone who disagrees with you on, you know, six out of nine of your uh, core political beliefs, um, uh, that that can create a pretty ugly situation the first time you actually do run into someone. Who yeah, it's easier to, to pigeonhole them as, as evil, yeah. which is one of the things you talk about, that the world is divided into good and evil people. Uh, you, you In your book, you pinpoint three great untruths, as uh-huh. you call them. These are things... Uh, that are, if adopted by the general public, their mental habits of anxious and depressed people, more or right. less, building off of the cognitive behavioral therapy argument. Not just anxious made. and depressed people. They're, they're just they're, they're bad habits. They're habits that will harm your life and both the ancients, either Eastern or Western, 
um, and modern psychology can say if you if you believe these things, it's going to harm you. And, and what it, are the three things? Uh, the, 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 the three things is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, which is, of course, a little bit of a play on, on, on Nietzsche. It wasn't kill you, make you stronger. Um, your feelings are always right, um, and the world is divided into good people and bad people. Um, or uh, we, we, say, we say them in slightly different ways all throughout. And then, and then you go on to demonstrate how these things are, these great untruths are being taught on the playground and all the way up to campus. Right, exactly. And, the, and you know, it's, it, it's kind of funny that the, the technique we ended up using is uh, sort of negative advice, as I would call it. And I, one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to negative advice is because my family actually, te- we tend to give advice to each other sometimes in negative advice. Rather than saying, you know, to my sister, you know, don't, Alex, don't stress out about that. Don't get too angry about that. The way we'd be is like, you know what, Alex, you know what you should do? You should take that anger and you should ball it up and fixate on it. Like, basically, like, we can't, there's some sarcastic side to uh-huh. us that we, but we actually, in doing that, kind of realize that in some ways, showing what the bad response would be is in some ways more valuable than giving your overall advice on what the good response would be. It's to, it's to agree and amplify, which I think comes from Ahoy Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> right. Which has a way of demonstrating you to you the absurdity of your your thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And, so, and also in this case, um, given how polarized the country is and we recognize, maybe if we can't agree on what good advice is, at least we can agree on what terrible advice looks like. Yeah. So that's that's the approach of the book because nobody um, the, the the most seductive one is is your feelings are always right because that sounds intuitively right to some portion of the population it de- definitely doesn't sound intuitively right to me um, but to other people they're like well you know follow your heart you know kind of like a, a, a romantic kind of idea of make sure your feelings are always right um, and that's an argument you see on college campuses a lot now they they speak as though like I'm speaking as you know this sort of person or that sort of, I'm speaking as speaking as a woman speaking yep. as a person of color. And then the argument proceeds to be an emotional one, right? Uh, that only someone in their position could understand. Right. So that sort of argument does have cachet. Yeah. In certain circles now. And that's why, you know, the, it's probably going to be one of the more controversial arguments in there because we call this the great untruth of emotional reasoning, but that's the one most tightly connected to the whole cognitive behavioral therapy kind of theory, because, uh, you know, part of stoic philosophy, you know, is to learn to sort of talk back um, to your own tendencies. CBT is exactly that. In Buddhism, a lot of what you're trying to do is to essentially create space between you and your own thoughts to understand that you are not your thoughts. It's Mm -hmm. always kind of hard to explain. (laughs) Um, But the, uh, uh, and at the same time, if you look at the way we kind of argue now, just the fact that you, the fact that you are offended, for example, you know, the fact that you're offended, that's a statement of an emotional state. It's not an argument of itself. And that sounds like a very cold-hearted thing to say, but as someone who knows what you what your life can look like if you just sort of follow what your what the voices you're are telling you, um, I think it's really better to be a little more critical. I think um, there was Susan Susan Davis, Susan, she, she wrote a um, a book that I'm currently reading talks about emotions being um, information not in, not instructions. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, you were working on another book uh-huh. as as before you started working on this one. Uh, you had and, and I forget exactly how it came about that you decided to get together with John to get the band back together uh-huh. and build off of the Atlantic article to write a book. Um, how, how did that that second collaboration come about? Was it just you know, I don't really remember what the final situation was, but just things seemed to be getting kind of progressively worse on campus. And so John and I just started talking about it. We decided to 
uh, you know, write, write a book about it. Um, write a proposal. I know there were a lot of int- a lot of interest in in getting the band back together because yeah. the Atlantic article right. was so popular. And initially, we, we were just when people bring it up, we're like, you know, we were happy with our article. Um, and this was in the early fall of 2016, um, and we 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 signed the agreement um, right around the right around the time of the 2016 election. And since part of the theory was polarization, and frankly, all of us thought that it was going to be President Hillary Clinton um, signing the agreement right around the time that the election happened, we're like, okay, so the <laughs> it's not probably crazy to guess that the polarization is about to get a little more intense. And of course, the uh, the twenty uh, the spring of twenty seventeen semester was the first time in my career. Certainly, there was violence on campus in the in the seventies um, and the sixties, but in my career that I saw actual violence happening on campus. So things did get really much more intense. So one thing that, that led to the uh, delay in the book, we were originally supposed to come out with this in the spring of this year, but so much was happening as we were writing the book and we kept on, we had to eventually stop just adding, uh, new, new material. Cause there was just a lot of disturbing trends. Um, yeah. There, there was a new study out on trigger warnings too. Yeah. Like that's not going to be in it's this not, book, not but more or less, uh, corroborates the arguments you make in it that if you prime people, to be hurt by content that they will. Oh, to be anxious about content. Anxious about content. And and, uh, and that's something that you know we we predicted to be to, to be clear. It's one study, um, and you know that doesn't doesn't, uh, doesn't prove it, but it does give some interesting evidence that maybe um, you, there might be unforeseen uh, uh, negative consequences to what you think of as kind and compassionate things, which is essentially what we're saying all throughout the book. A lot of these things that we thought had no downside might, in fact, actually have downsides if taken too far. Yeah, and but this book also. Also, isn't one of dire warning. It's also one of solutions. Uh-huh. You spend a good chunk of the latter part of the book talking about uh, how we can create wiser universities, wiser um, wiser schools, wiser societies. I forget all the words you go through. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, wising it, up, is yeah, it's, it's, it's wising up. Yeah. yeah. And why did you think that was necessary? And and was it hard to come up with those solutions? Well. Um, uh, you know, we definitely wanted to say very much at the beginning of that section, uh, these are some of our ideas. We hope that this book will will spawn a discussion about what other ideas are out there to help fix the problems we identify in the book. Um, and uh, so when we talk about, you know, wise parenting, um, you know, the free-range kids movement, you know, is, is, is a big part of that. Um, one thing that we kind of surprised ourselves by coming to the conclusion something that could be very positive um, would be uh, allowing um, sort of making a cultural norm of a gap year uh, having uh, making and I'm thinking about this for my sons to be like listen uh, you there's probably nothing more valuable you can do before you go to college and spend a year working a jobity job um, this can you'll, you'll learn tremendously from that and skills you can't learn in any other way yeah, the, the the three parts in the wising up uh, part of the book are wiser kids, wiser universities, and wiser sci- uh, societies. I also see here in the acknowledgments there's a how to do CBT section. <laughs> no, talk, yeah. talk to me a little bit about uh, now. You aren't a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm a hobbyist. You, yeah, you're a <laughs> hobbyist. Uh, you were someone who used CBT, so yep. you do have some personal knowledge of it. But how did you get the information you needed to to write about CBT in a way that wouldn't 
piss off the sure. professionals. Well, okay. So one thing, person I always like to do a shout out for is that my uh, joining uh, joining us some months into the project uh, is my chief researcher Pamela Paretsky. She has a PhD in psychology. She was really interested in the calling the American Mind article, and she was tremendously helpful as we went through tremendous amounts of psycho- psychology research. My my executive assistant is a has a uh, has a BA from Yale in in psychology as well. So it was nice that partially because we wrote the uh, coddling the mind article um people wanted to work with us um that could really help Mm -hmm. we also talked to a number of experts about um cognitive behavioral therapy in particular robert Leahy, um who uh you know wrote one of the one of the great textbooks on cognitive behavioral therapy um was incredibly helpful uh to us uh when we were when we were writing the book and i I was sending him emails a lot being like am i saying this right um so so far you know we, we ran everything we could by as many experts as possible yeah we're recording this now six days before the book comes out what is today the 29th and so far there have been a couple of reviews trickling in financial times commentary the cover of the new york times book review uh i'm I'm missing it there's a couple of the sunday times there's been a couple of publications in the uk and i've been surprised by how many of the reviews are positive given uh a lot of the cultural hot buttons that you touch here yeah and, and the interesting thing, too, is, I mean, uh, people, it seems like these people have given it a thorough read. And I, I think a lot of people expect a book about free speech. Yeah. Uh, given the work that you do and some of the things that John is talking about. But it's really not. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's really about parenting. What are you expecting? Well, parenting and also the situation on campus. We talk about yeah. some real horror stories um, on campus. So free speech is in there. But definitely people who are familiar with my work just assume this is going to be another First Amendment book. And it's like, no, this is much... Uh, in my opinion, also uh, so much deeper and so much more interesting and why it's such a pleasure to get to work with people like Height and Pamela and yeah. Eli. The, the critical reviews, I suspect, will come because I think this oh, will be a oh, high, high profile. Where, uh, where do you think the most uh, controversial notes in your book will be? Or is it kind of hard? <laughs> I, de- you never know. I mean, be, being, being president of FIRE... Um, you, well, you, 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 both, you both talk about how inter- intersectionality fits into oh, all right. this a little bit. Yeah, that's true. So the identity politics um, was something that I was, of course, like, are we, do we really have to get into that? But given how much of the arguments on campus um, in the past couple of years seem to be so wrapped around wrapped around different aspects of intersectionality and identity politics, we realized we kind of had no choice. But when John wrote the first draft of the chapter on um, uh, on intersectionality and identity politics, I was really pleased to see he grounded it in really well-established um, group polarization um, science, that essentially it's really easy to make pe- even people who otherwise consider themselves from the same in-group feel competitive and even hostile to each other if you if you make the, the circumstances right or wrong, depending on how you look at it. You know, things as trivial as um, taking a group full, uh, a room full of people and giving some people blue shirts and some people red shirts can suddenly make the red shirts feel like a little bit hostile to the blue shirts and or at least less empathy for them. Um, so the fact that he really grounded it in stuff that we know, um, I, I think it's I think it's safe to say we know can make people hostile to each other. Um, and emphasizing the fact that we're doing some of these things on campus. Um, that create a sense of uh, an increased sense of sort of division and then wondering why people feel so divided. Yeah. So this is this is not a book about me, right? Because uh, <laughs> I'm a millennial. Uh-huh. Uh, you two draw a, a, a pretty pretty thick line between millennials and what a generation you're calling iGen, uh, which is a uh, where did that 
that phrase came from. It's, it's Gene Twangy's term yeah. for it, and it, it, it's basically like parallel to I, I, iPhone. Um, Twangy, you know, like we we did really do a deep dive into into her research, and we absolutely think she's 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 onto something, and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to. Um, use her term when we're talking about the generation we're talking about. Now, of course, everybody thinks it's, we're talking about millennials, and they're like, oh, millennial bashing. Talking and, about me, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I am always like, no, no, actually, I think millennials get a pretty bad rap. Um, I think that o- overall, like, the sort of story about millennials is pretty pretty harsh. Um, when it comes to iGen, you know, uh, there are some really interesting um, uh, characteristics that iGen has. One of the most interesting that doesn't get a lot of coverage in, in, in the book, I think we mentioned it, though, is uh, for the polarization chapters, is that you might be surprised to know that actually there are more self-identifying conservatives among iGen than there are among millennials. Oh, interesting. And people are like, that's surprising. I'm like, yes, and they're coming from the moderates because the moderate part of the of the equation has uh, largely decreased like pretty dramatically. Um, so the same kind of polarization we're seeing in the rest of society is actually you know characteristic of well, iGen. Well, the first iGeners would have entered college right around 2013, 2014 when you started to notice this rise and this different sort of discussion about speech on campus, the medicalization of speech on campus. Yep. And it's this year, next year, where they'll be entering our corporations and yeah. you know, our, our businesses uh, and the broader society. So you make some predictions in here, um, or you suggest some predictions in here that I think the 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 broader community that is not the iGen community will start to be able to to see if it bears out. Yeah, if anybody thinks that the, some of the problems they're seeing on campus are going to stay on campus, they're kidding themselves. Yeah. All right, Greg. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Is there anything else you wanted you wanted to mention before we sign off? Uh, I, I hope something doesn't come up before we run this next week. But <laughs> uh, you know, I always like to give a shout out once again for for Pamela Pretsky for coming up for coining the term safetyism. Um, I th- uh, that was a, we we had a long sort of standing sort of discussion of like what will we call this phenomena and. Uh, hers definitely won out and it's been interesting watching the coverage like how much people have taken to that term yeah yeah the book is available on amazon wherever fine books are sold and a portion of the proceeds go to support fire so uh if if that's not a uh if the the ideas in the book aren't enough to get you out to buy it (laughs) and you love fire do it for that you want to buy a hundred thousand copies yeah 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 love to see it land on the bestsellers list so greg thanks for talking to me today Uh, (laughs) thanks for having me nico That was my boss, the man who hired me to come to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. That was Greg Lukianoff. You can find he and Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, wherever fine books are sold. As always, this podcast is hosted by me, uh, produced by me as well, and uh, recorded and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. Although this one was recorded by me. So this one was just edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. Uh, to learn more about So To Speak, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. Uh, you can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And please leave us a review. You like this podcast? Uh, Google Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I don't know. Wherever you can leave a review, please do it. It helps attract new listeners for the show to the show, perhaps more than anything else. And until next time, check out The Coddling of the American Mind. Order it. Help us land on the bestsellers list. And thank you again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>